Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1987. And don't forget the podcast, Ed. The movie? Raising Arizona. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is the show where we are putting together the definitive best 100 films of all time this is our second season a brand new mini series called fucked up families and we are trying to determine what might be the best movie with a fucked up family we have so many options in front of us in this mini series uh amy let's just go through them real quick uh we're starting off with raising arizona tokyo story eve's bayou the royal tenenbaums guess who's coming to dinner the farewell and then on christmas eve we are going strong with the release of home alone uh the first time we're doing a john hughes movie and what great timing to celebrate it's true and of course we cannot forget our listeners choice yet another time to vote and you guys have made some excellent votes so far listeners have put forth dazed and confused and the thing and i'm excited to see what fucked up family film y'all have in mind now now the hashtag for our listeners choice because you gotta have a hashtag is hashtag kinspooled K-I-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D, Kinspooled. Use a hashtag and tell us what fucked up family film you want to see. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what people come up with. Uh, so far, the listener choices have been amazing. I'm very excited about this uh, miniseries. And it was great to talk to everybody last week about what they thought about our horror series. And you can watch uh, clips of that on my Twitch page, which is uh, twitch.tv slash Paul Shear, and you don't need to be a subscriber to Twitch. It's just like YouTube. Just go there and you can see uh, the whole show kind of uh, cut up into little sections or watch the entire thing. It was really fun to kind of break it down and hearing what you all thought uh, was the best horror films. So, Amy, I mean, without any further ado, what do you think? Should we uh, should we get into it? All right, Amy, let's unspool these huggies. The year is 1987 and... You got it, dude. That's right. Full House debuts. The Simpsons first appear in a short clip on The Tracy Ullman Show. President Reagan tries to unify Berlin in his request for Mikhail Gorbachev to 
tear down this wall. Paul, you're killing it with the impressions today. Aretha Franklin is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Prozac makes its debut in the U.S. And this year's hot films are Fatal Attraction, Three Men and a Baby, Lethal Weapon, Dirty Dancing, and today's film, Raising Arizona. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip. Whole life is just for a title. Like you're supposed to be an example. What? Did this man? Uh huh. I never postured myself as a three-piece suit type. Turn right, honey. We got a child now. Everything's changed. Well, Nathan Jr. accepts me for what I am, and I think you better have two. You know, honey, I'm okay. You're okay. That there's what it is. I know, but honey. See, I come from a long line of frontiersmen, and oh, here it is, dear. Turn here. Frontiersmen and outdoor cops. I'm not gonna live this way, huh? It just ain't family life. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. Amy, Raising Arizona, who's in it? What's it about? Raising Arizona. This is the story of H.I. McDonough, a convenience store stick-up man trying to go straight because he will do anything for his new wife, Ed, including steal her a baby. And the baby in mind is one of the Arizona quintuplets. Now, in Raising Arizona, stealing the baby is pretty easy. It's just when the baby's dad gets involved, plus ex-convicts John Goodman and William Forsyth, plus the biker of the apocalypse played by Randall Tex Cobb, stealing the baby is much, much easier than holding on to it. Now, H.I. and Ed are played by Nick Cage and Holly Hunter, two actors who I would say are perfect at straddling the line between comedy and drama, which makes them, I think, perfect for the Coen brothers. You know, the Coen brothers are just masters of both genres. Now, Raising Arizona is actually the Coen Brothers' second film. It's only their second film that they ever made after their Texas Noir Blood Simple. And it really was designed to show audiences the range of their talents, that the Coen Brothers can do big and bright and funny just as well as they had already done dark and tense. We'll talk about this more in the episode, but the Coens called Raising Arizona their sellout film, the movie that was calculated to take them from indie darlings to popular heroes, which I think is a lovely parallel with H.I. McDonough himself. He wants to ascend from goon to good citizen. So it makes sense that when you take that and rewind it back, the number one song on the Billboard charts in March 1987 when this movie came out, March 13th, 1987, is also about striving to do better. It's a forgotten ditty by Huey Lewis in the news called Jacob's Ladder. I gotta say, like, when I take that and rewind it back, I, I, I'm straight with y'all. I don't try to, like, play with it, take the number two song, take the week before. That is legitimately the number one song that was on that week. But this week, I was tempted to fudge it because the number one song the week before was Bon Jovi Living on a Prayer, song that means very much to me. And the number two song this week, the number two song that came in right after that I would say forgettable Huey Lewis and the news the news banger, which no diss, I love them usually. Is this song from another beloved movie? Amy, I'm very familiar with that song, as it was the wedding song from my mom's second marriage. Uh, that is what she picked, uh, the American Tale 
The Fievel song was her wedding song. I have a few questions. Was her oh, husband sure. not at the actual wedding? Um, well, maybe it was like someone out there and then she found him. And Amy, if you think that's weird, I'll top it and tell you the song that my mom and I danced to at that wedding was Billy Joel's Don't Go Changin'. If you don't, if you know those lyrics, it's probably not the most, uh, I don't know, it's not the most uh, mother-son uh, kind of <laughs> song. I like it's a bizarre song. I've only come to realize how bizarre it is as I've gotten older. Uh, wow, but as as you have many things about your relationship with your mom. Yes, and you can hear about all of them on how did this get made, uh, interspersed over the years. Um, I will say this um, interesting fact about that Huey Lewis song. I was a big Huey Lewis fan, still am. I don't know why he stopped making music, but he actually um, recorded that song as he was dying. And uh, yeah, so that was it. So he was he was dead because it's a Jacob Ladder scenario, right? Oh my! Wait, is Huey Lewis dead? No, he's not dead. Oh god, you freaked me out. <laughs> I was like, did he die that long ago, and I didn't know? No, it's just a Jacob's Ladder scenario. He didn't rec- he he thought he recorded a hit song, a number one hit song, but he actually died. No, uh, that is how I the Jacob's Ladder works. I did not think you works. should scare me like that about Mr. Huey Lewis. <laughs> Come on, he came back for news. pineapple. He came back for pineapple express. I mean, he was ready to go. Um, <laughs> uh, I will say, if it had been somewhere out there, that is the perfect song for Nathan Junior to be singing about his family. Wouldn't Nathan Junior so didn't seem perfect. Didn't seem concerned about his family at all. He was getting some more attention. Um, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I'm older than you, Amy. So this movie was really interesting to me because I remember these commercials on TV oh, really? all the time when this came out. I guess it just hit me at the right age. And it was like this big comedy. I didn't see it when I was a kid, uh, but I just remember like the images and, you know, because it, it has a very um, hangover-esque uh, poster, or at least I remember it as that. It was like uh, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter on these lawn chairs and then a baby on a lawn chair too. I think as time has passed, they've eliminated the baby from most of the posters, but when it was being advertised, it was very much a baby-centric movie, like in the vein of like a Home Alone, like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how funny this baby is. Because I remember the commercials were just cuts of the baby going, or being on the side of the road, or just in these precarious positions. And I remember being like, this movie's going to be funny. Like, I just, I loved a, a good baby movie. But wow. it, it was you know, clear as, that they, As yeah. you're saying that out loud, I, you got me to look up the release date of Three Men and a Baby, because that was also mm-hmm. 1987. But it was a few months later. I was like, oh, maybe Three Men and a Baby had just come out. And they're like, we got to get on that baby train. Well, I guess even to, you know, a larger point, I don't know if they necessarily knew how to advertise this movie. Because this movie is so uniquely Coen Brothers, but it also is probably their most accessible film, I would imagine. Like, I think you probably make a little bit of an argument here and there, but this is the one that, if you've never seen a Coen Brothers film, I think you should probably start here. Uh, It has all the things that you love about Coen Brothers films, but it also is just big and goofy. And, um, you know, I think because it's so bizarre, you have a character like Nick Cage in this film who is, you know, this criminal, but his language is very flowery. It's there's a lot of incongruities, right? Like you don't know how to grab this movie. You know, it's a, it's bizarre. It's funny. It's big. But I feel like this movie, while it was intended to get them out and into the world, it was a hard movie for people to actually know how to advertise it or what to make of it. Yeah. I mean, because we know now that the Coens, I would say, are, are singular directors in their ability to straddle, you know, 
comedy and drama. I think the only other person I'd put next to them who's as good at that is Tarantino. Yeah. Um, but they're they're bigger, I think, and funnier than him in a lot of ways. But of course, like when this movie comes out, they're so new in their career, nobody has a purchase on them. No, like their their rocky sealed seed of their imagination can find no purchase on who the Coen brothers are yet because <laughs> we don't know. They're young; they're thirty two and twenty nine, respectively. Yeah, um, and they don't have kids when this this movie comes out. It's not like they're like they had this passion project of we have kids, we're young dads, we want to make a, a movie about how much we love our families. It's more like they thought. Oh, if we can put a baby's face in this movie, they called it, quote unquote, movie fodder. They said it was almost like a blood squib, that there's these things you can put in movies. Audiences will love them. And they're like, well, we just did a bloody film. Let's do a baby film. And Ethan, word for word, literally called Raising Arizona, quote, a real cheap and shameless bid at making a commercial movie. We decided to sell out. And that was the first decision. Well, by the way, more power to them, because if directors like the Coen brothers sell out and make a movie like this, then they really haven't sold out. They may have played into things that are typical, but they did not make a typical movie. It wasn't like they made uh, Three Men and a Baby, and no offense to uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, for directing that, but it's not... I think you could probably put this in the camp of like Christopher Nolan doing a Batman film. It's uniquely a Christopher Nolan film, but it also is... uh, you know, it has all the tenets of what you want from a big superhero movie. Or, you know, it gives you, it kind of scratches both itches, I guess, uh, in a way. And I didn't pull this before, so I want to test my knowledge. I have a commercial right now of a TV spot for Raising Arizona. Let me see if my memory plays out right. Oh, an angel! Everybody's rushing to see the most outrageous comedy in years. Hold on, Nathan. People Magazine calls it an assault on the funny bone. Hang on for the joyride. Thank you. USA Today raves four stars. A wonderful, one-of-a-kind comedy. And Newsweek calls it hilarious. A hoot and a half. Raising Arizona. A comedy beyond belief. Rated PG-13. Now playing at select theaters. Yep, that is how I remember it exactly. <laughs> I mean, that is that is a comedy with a K style trailer. Bring your granny. It's going to be a real hootenanny. But, you know, Amy, to your point about them not you know, being passionate about this. I think one of the coolest things about well, this... Well, passionate oh. it's different than calculated selling out. But yeah, okay. go on. Well, I guess what I was saying was like not having families of their own and wanting mm-hmm. to tell the story. I think this movie is a Trojan horse in many ways because it really is about people on this, you know, precipice of do I continue doing what I've been doing Or do I settle down? And like, what is the American dream? And there's so many little details in this movie that make it so much more thematically uh, engaging. And I think you can watch it on one level and be like, here's a person running around with a stocking cap on his head and there's a crazy dog and, you know, a guy with braces with a shotgun. Uh, All that stuff works. But what they kind of are able to put underneath it is to me, very much the story of probably what they're going through. These two guys who are, you know, getting into their 30s, like what's the next chapter of their life? And obviously they're not criminals, but it's like, do we keep on running this cycle? You know, whatever that cycle is, you know, you know, whether it's dating a lot, whether it's not dating, you know, we, I think at a certain point have to make a choice to be like, I'm an adult, but now how do I want to be an actual adult? No, you're so right. I mean, I feel like this film has, all of these strata underneath it. It's almost like going to the Grand Canyons or and like looking at all of the rock strata and all of the different stories and ideas that this movie is trying to put forth. Uh, but one of them, I think, is definitely this idea of like 
being born as an adult, you know, like from the idea, from the image even of like John Goodman and William Forsyth as like criminals escaping from prison who have this birth sequence being born into the world and then realizing they're not ready to be born into the world and going back into this muddy birth canal with all of yeah. this scream. Can we just listen to John Goodman scream, by the way? Because God, I love hearing him scream. This idea of like adult maturation, you know, I think there the mud birth is the most like visually symbolic example of it. But that's Absolutely. exactly who Nick Cage is trying to be this whole time. Am I a grown up? Like, are we a grown up together? It, it feels so much to me like it's about maturity and about partnerships and families. You have all of these different couples in this film, you know, uniting and trying to go on a quest together. Even I think John Goodman and his brother are like a couple, you know, all these tag teams and partnerships. Yeah, well, I, I want to just kind of jump on your screaming thing. This movie, if I was a more talented uh, audiophile, I would put together a montage of all the screams because the screams in this movie are amazing. And and there's this idea also, I mean, here, I'm going to go forward in this and go like a primal scream. Like, what is the primal scream that we all have inside of us of, you know, I'm trapped. I can't do the things that I want. And I, and I think the one thing that brings it all out is this idea of living the typical American life. Like what, what am I supposed to be doing in the frustration of that? And in that, this whole movie really is this fight of I'm doing the things I'm supposed to, but it's not working. And why is it not working? I'm playing by the rules. And it is that, that frustration. Have you ever heard that um, idea that that first primal scream, the first primal yell or sob that a baby makes or that a John Goodman makes when he comes from the earth is the most natural expression of in a human's entire being. Because it's the first no, time they make a noise, an emotion that just comes from within without the expectation of anything. You know, that like the first time a baby cries and then it gets a hug and then it gets some milk. Then the baby's like, oh, screaming gets me hug and milk. And it's only and so they learn that their emotions have an have um, an effect, but that I first scream that. is just the first purest expression of emotion that a human will ever make. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I want to throw something to you which is wild. I know it's wild and probably too early to even get into my wild theories about this movie because there's so much to talk about. There is a world where essentially I feel 
uh, Randall Tex Cobb, uh, who plays the bounty hunter, and Gale and Evel don't really exist. What? Like, okay, well, here's what I'm saying. I think they are in many ways the manifestation of Nick Cage's persona, right? If Nick Cage was to be a criminal and just go Mm -hmm. for it, right? He would be uh, like the bounty hunter. And by having those two brothers like come out of the ground, to me, it's about Nick Cage. He's put that life behind him, but you know what? He can't put it behind him. It's literally seeping out of him and they're coming in. And obviously I'm not saying that like, it's like the sixth sense. And if you watch the scenes, they're not really there, but they are very much, I think you could take them away And you would have a very similar movie. It's really Nick Cage kind of fighting these versions of himself because, you know, the the brothers kind of bring him back in the crime so much so that he leaves his family, writes that note, leaves the family. And this image of this man, uh, this bounty hunter, you know, when he says, like, do you see him too? Like, he saw him. There's like, there's this idea. I think there's something about him wrestling with, these are the three personas of me. Do I go full in and be a bad guy? Because he's not a bad guy. He robs stores without bullets in the gun. You know, but what if he just committed to being a bad guy? Then he would be this beast of a man who says in the movie that he sells babies uh, or has sold a baby. Like, you know, he's he's a, a gun for hire, a bounty hunter on some mm-hmm. level, right? Or you have him being like uh, the brothers who are just going to keep on falling into that cycle. Or you have the version of him, which is the hair down Version. I think, you know, this whole movie can be judged on where his hair is, you know, up or down. Like when he's down, he's the the suburban dad. And when he's up, it's like I'm the criminal. It's this kind of his hair tells the story of this movie. And that's what I love even at the end, because Holly Hunter's hair pops up when she goes wild. And it's like, oh, she's now him. I, I just think there's something really interesting about fighting these parts of ourselves and, and these characters being a manifestation of the feelings and where he could go. That that's my big takeaway and my big thought in watching this probably like the fifteenth time. <laughs> okay, so if I if if I'm understanding you correctly, yes. you're trying to make the argument that raising Arizona is H. I. McDonough's collateral beauty. <laughs> you know, I'm yes and no because I think there is. If you just do me the favor. And take them out of the equation, right? Those three characters. The movie pretty much runs the same way because that moment at the end, I know I'm jumping around, but I think this is a good, fun discussion that we can like use to hang a lot of the things on it. Um, when, you, when he pulls the grenade pin out of the bounty hunter's uh, grenade, he looks at him and he's like, sorry. And it's almost like in that moment, he's saying goodbye to himself. You know, he's... He's like, he's killing that part of himself. And, you know, and then what happens is the two criminals, the brothers go back to jail. Like they go back underground. And what we're seeing at the end is him finally at peace. He kills the idea of the bad part of himself and he sends the other ones away. They go back to jail and they go back willingly. Like they get put back in the box. So there's something about it that was really like, I was like, ooh, this is kind of a fun way of looking at this movie is just... You know, he's essentially battling three people because I mean, the whole movie is a dream, right? Or it exists in a weird, a weird world. You know, he sees everything that's going to happen to him. 
when the uh, unpainted furniture salesman of Arizona says, like, sleep on it. Like, he literally sleeps and sees his future. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. There's just something there to be wrestled with on some level. I mean, artistically, I like your point. Artistically, I think right. that's very beautiful. So, I'll give you one point of defense, which okay. is that um, when the Coen brothers constructed, like, uh, Leonard Smalls, the lone breaker of the apocalypse, they did think, like, what's the thing that would scare a character like High McDonough the most? And they thought if a character like High McDonough was thinking about what is evil, what is terror, what scares me, that he would look like a biker, that he would look like a hell's angel. So they did design that character to look like High's version of the worst thing on, on possible. However, what blows that all up is that like we see the biker have a scene without Nick Cage there with like with Nathan Arizona about simple economics, which I actually want to play that in a second. But first, I want to tear apart your point and say that you're wrong. Um, <laughs> as much as I actually love I love that kind of deep, that deep thought reading. Um, so it's like once you have him interact with somebody outside of Nick Cage's head, it can't work like that. But I do think that's a lovely thought that, that, that I think it is a nice way of like externalizing his inner wrestling. Well, but here's what I'll say. I'm not saying it holds up like the sixth sense. I don't think the movie is constructed that way. I believe that there are guests at their house. I believe mm-hmm. that, you know, like. Does it hold like, up like Fight Club? Um, no, because those are manifestations. And I think I'm talking about two different things, which is like this movie has a magical realism to it. It just does. Right. Um, the the dreams really are the two places where I would, I would point that out. What they really and truly represent and that's what I'm getting to, that, is okay, that they, are, yeah. they represent these two sides of himself. And the fact that he dreams the biker and, the, and, he, and he says that line like, oh, you can see him too. It's like a literal manifestation of his dream. His worst nightmare is a part of this. And you're right. Like he does have his own scene. But I will argue that the image of Randall Tex Cobb the road warrior clad, you know, not in this world. And this movie is very much in this world, uh, even though it's heightened. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he he is so soft-spoken like Nicolas Cage. Like when you when you first hear him open his mouth, he's not like, get to me the fuck out. You know, it's like yeah. it's, it's almost very it's he's as intelligent and as eloquent as any other character, which I also think is an interesting choice, considering that Nick Cage, we meet him as like a criminal. And he's also incredibly intelligent and eloquent uh or you know not intelligent but he uh he has a well, way of he speak, a, a way fancy. of speaking he speaks yes. fancy i mean uh, i think one of the things that Coen brothers said they were looking for when they were figuring out how they wanted these characters to speak was they figured like in this part of the country that the number one book these people have read is the bible mm. and they're like these characters know the bible really well the bible is all full of archaic speech and that's why they'll speak in these archaic pattern ways like like that he can go from saying you know that ed wants to have a critter to also saying that her womb is a barren soil where his seed can find no purchase to go from critter to biblical speech like that is is that contradiction that's like in this film scripted into the very like marrow of it that i I love so much and i want to i like i actually pulled that clip where um nicholas cage apologizes to Leonard Smalls right before he blows him up because I find that scene so moving. But let's listen to it first. I'm 
love about it is because, yes, like this film is so exaggerated in, st- in style and tone, but that it has that little moment of, I don't know if grief is exactly the right word, but that awareness that Randall texts Cobb, that Leonard Smalls is a person who, when he blows up, it's not necessarily happy. Like, it's not like, haha, we got you. No. There's, there's a moral code to that apology that that's the sort of thing that in a movie makes me cry. Honestly, like that kind of a moment, that that silent apology. Oh, the it's a beautiful moment. And again, going back to what you said earlier about Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage, like they can walk this line of of comedy and drama. I this movie is a tricky movie because at the root of it, it is about a couple who steals a baby. Probably the most despicable thing you could possibly do. And the only way oh, stealing a puppy, I would say, is well, sure, pretty high. But I guess what I'm saying, what I think about this movie is this movie has to be over the top and has to have these characters be incredibly likable. Like the comedy dilutes the despicable nature of these people, right? And that end moment also does that. You have to, you can't be happy that he kills the bounty hunter who is trying to get the baby back to the baby's parents, right? I mean, it's, I don't know. They walked that line so well and watching it. I was like, this is genius because if, if this script was in any other people's hands, they would be kind of despicable, but you love them so much. And I think because of the heightened world, the cartoon world of it, uh, you let them get away with it. Well, yeah. And I think that Nicolas Cage in casting him, the Coen brothers have found a really specific secret weapon, which is that Nicolas Cage is one of those actors, there's not an, there's not enough of them, in my opinion, who have eyebrows that tilt up in the middle. You know, the Colin <laughs> Farrell eyebrows. Because I think any actor who has the eyebrows that tilt up in the middle like that, the instant empathy face, they can get away with anything. Like, an actor with those eyebrows can do anything he fucking wants. Well, I mean, it makes you really happy that Kevin Costner, who auditioned three times, didn't get this part. You know, it... Kevin Costner couldn't do this. I And that's no slam on Kevin Costner, but you need someone to be as facile as Nicolas Cage. I remember uh, reading an article, or was it maybe when I was working with him, uh, he described his style of acting as kabuki. Like, it is, performance is so full, and you, I think that you actually, I mean, it's a crazy thing to say, like, as much as his eyebrows, and I think that's important, like, you're paying attention to him, like, you are almost sympathizing with his whole body. Like, you want to hug him. Like, he feels, he doesn't feel dangerous. Like, well, this is a criminal who's been in jail numerous times. Or, you know, they have this 10-minute prologue in the beginning, which is so great. But they, he's immediately likable, but doing things that are not across the board. Well, yeah, but, and, and the way he's even written, I think, in that, like, opening prologue. You know, this is such a great moment to even have that conversation that we have sometimes about, like, narration you know Mm. in in characters narrating their own story he does that thing really early on where you realize that he is more naive than the world he lives in like it's a really well-written narration of his character because he's like i'm here in prison and look people are nice so we get along and he says we get along like one minute into this film when you watch that guy snarl at him and that's that kind of thing that like implants in your brain and you're like this guy is sweeter than the world around him this guy is nicer than the world around him and you get to immediately, I mean, if we're talking about this, we just have to hear him meet Ed right now, because I love that. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Don't forget his profile, Ed. Turn to the right. A day I'll never forget. Turn to the right. 
guy named Zed for a pretty thing like you. Short for Edwina. Turn to the right. You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower. Let me know how those come out. But yeah, like our introduction to him through that narration is just building empathy and building empathy for this guy. And I love that Nicolas Cage, who I will admit I go really heavily back and forth on as an actor because he's to me, he's radically getting closer to the Bruce Willis line of I'll just do anything for a quick payday. And it in the unpredictability of him as an actor can make me go crazy because like in the times of my life where I've been very pro Nicolas Cage. Then he'll do something like Left Behind. And I don't mind him doing Left Behind. But you can tell that people are like, we'll put Nicolas Cage in Left Behind. You're the movie where like everybody's raptured away. And instead of making it crazy Nicolas Cage, he'll do like bland Nicolas Cage. He either goes really bland or really crazy. And bland Nicolas Cage is like my least favorite thing on the planet. I guess what I'm trying to say is Nicolas Cage is one of those actors who I'm taking off my list of every time I see their name show up in a cast list, I think I must watch it. Because he's saying yes to too much crap? Yes. Well, I agree with you. And I think you have to look at his filmography as the ones that he wants you to see and the ones that he that are just VOD yeah. style, right? And I think you can draw a very clean line. And you would be very happy if you just watched the ones that felt like were the ones that he wants you to see and as yeah. an actor and, and i think there are a lot of actors like this who are like how much money are you gonna give me great and i will say that because i have a personal experience with him because i did that movie with him and it was just me and him pretty much in every scene and a couple dinners and and things like that this man gives a shit like yeah. he cares and and he works hard and the end result might be across the board. And I think he is, um, I think a lot of actors are like this. They're kind of this amazing tool. But if you understand how to use it, it's it gives you this performance that is unlike anything else. And uh, not to slam this actor at all, but I think Mark Wahlberg falls into that category. Like Mark Wahlberg can go from being like mind-blowingly great or hilarious to bland. You know, uh, Max Payne versus, you know, Boogie Nights, you know, and, mm. and I think it's sort of like, how do you use that tool? And, and I think it's you need to be a really good director and understand what you're getting into and and how you want that person to be. And I think the Coen brothers are also getting Nick Cage at kind of the height. But this is also a time where he's doing Vampire's Kiss. So it's not like, oh, he didn't go crazy yet. Like Vampire's Kiss is fucking yeah. a bizarre performance. This but is a reined in. Yeah. But he does this in the year he's like really breaking out. I mean, we've we've had Nicolas Cage be in like the background of movies now. Like mm-hmm. we've, even in the last couple of months, we were talking about him in the in the background of Fast Times. And now to have him um, do this movie in the year where he like is starring in Moonstruck, you know, he's like, oh, I am a movie star now. Like I'm not a background right. guy. Like y'all were aware of me. Here I am. Hello. You know, yeah. He knows he knows where his career is headed. And it. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. I, I am carrying, so I think, some vestigial anger about watching him in that movie where he's like a guy with a, what was it, like a a white jaguar. Uh, did anybody see this VOD movie this year? I saw that movie. I'm mad but about you, it. But you are a reviewer who are forced to watch these things. Like, yes. I think the most of America just get to see the ones that he's actually truly promoting. Like, yeah. I'm not watching the one where he's like on the USS Annapolis or whatever. You know, I'm like, I'm not watching those movies. I'm watching. Is, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a great opening for me to say that being a film critic is the hardest job on the planet. <laughs> but to the point of like him and directors, I think it's really interesting to like hear about how he was working with the Coens in this film because, you know, he is still so early in his career that when he showed up on set, they had the Nicholas spelled wrong on his chair. Oh, you know, wow. they put the H in Nicholas on his chair. And um, I think it was uh, Ethan Cohen took a Band-Aid and taped it over the H on his chair because he knew how sensitive Nicolas Cage was about that. But everybody didn't know how you spelled his name wrong, you know? Wow. And so on that set, like Nicolas Cage does show up and he's like, I have so many ideas for high. Oh, I have so many ideas. And the Coens are not, I think, people who are that open to improvisation. You know, they right. have a very specific idea. They come to us to the movie with like every line of dialogue perfectly scripted scripted like honed sharpened manicured within an inch of its life painted gloss the whole thing they come to, to set with all of their shots storyboarded perfectly and so to have that loose pinball that Nicolas Cage likes to be the kind of like let's make it the Nicolas Cage show I have so many I'm bursting forth like a volcano it was not the most perfect fit you know he got really I think he was so irritated about the fact that they wouldn't let him improvise much of his language that he did get into stuff like his hair in the Hawaiian shirts, that was his idea. He's like, where are the places where, where my creative seed can find purchase? Because otherwise he was telling like um, journalists at the time when they were showing up on set, he said that the Coens have, quote, an autocratic nature in that he has learned how difficult it is for them to accept another artist's vision. So he felt like he wasn't completely getting his due as a creative partner in the film. I think that you come across that a lot with directors that are this specific. I mean, the Coen brothers, like you said, are incredibly, like, I don't think that you put them in the same, well, I guess I do. Like Fincher, you know, is very similar to that. Like, you know that they have an idea of what they want. But I think for this film to walk this line and find this tone is they need him to be on this razor's edge, right? Because it can't be too goofy. But yet when you tell me that, oh, he, he came up with the Hawaiian shirts, that is one of the best laughs I have in the beginning of the film when you see the two sides of the church and every one of his <laughs> friends is in Hawaiian yeah. shirts and everyone, you yeah. know. And I do think that the hair thing, we talked about it before, this idea of like the hair is the barometer of where he is at, right? As it goes up, he's more stressed. As it goes down, he's more chill. And and I love that. I alluded to in the beginning, like, that really rubs off on Holly Hunter because at the end, when she goes full on crazy, she actually looks like high. Like she's got the marks on her face. She's got this energy about her. Um, and obviously it's coming from a different place, but it's like this idea. And I going back to the primal screams and like what's inside of us and what comes out of us. Um, you know, it's it's so interesting that I feel like here's another big statement I make that the that trying to be the perfect American family or trying to have the perfect relationship basically keeps this deep seated anger and rage underneath you. And then these characters explode with it. You know, they are, they are ready to go. I mean, she's a, a stand, you know, stand up citizen police officers, like go steal me a baby. Like she's like, go do it. Like what? Like, wait, what? Like, but there is this idea of like trying to be chase perfection unleashes this beast inside all of us. Yeah. And what I love so much about the way they are all talking about the baby here in this film and the way the baby works is because there is a lot of, you know, there is a lot of like, I want a baby. I want a child. You know, Mm -hmm. here's even Holly Hunter saying it. I'm sorry, honey. It just didn't work out. It didn't work out. Well, they they started crying and 
They were all over me. It was kind of horrifying, honey. Let me in. Of course they cried, baby. Cried. Well, I know that now. Come on, honey. We better leave. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than they can handle. Oh, honey. I... Don't you come back here without a baby. And yet, while I think this film works so well in that emotional level, when they talk about the baby in other ways, it sounds more like an achievement of the American dream in an economic way. You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the conversation between between the lone biker of the apocalypse and Nathan Arizona. First off, get your damn feet off my furniture. Second off, it's widely known I posted a 25 grand reward for my boy. Now, if you can find him, claim it. Short of that, what do we got to talk about? Price. Fair price. That's not what you say it is. That's what the market will bear. Simple economics. Now, there are people, and mind you, I know them, that'll pay a lot more than $25,000 for a healthy baby. What are you after? Give you an idea. Why is a pup I myself fetched $30,000 from the black market? It was $1954. To hear them hammer home this economic thing, which I think is the way they have so many people talk about the baby, like as a practical matter, you know, it's economics to John Goodman as well. Like it's economics um, to the guy who just wants to make his wife happy. Um, the guy who gets his face punched in Glenn, you know, it's it's a calculation that doesn't quite exist in love. It exists more like in satisfy this need, get this money, make check this, this woman box. happy, check this box. And the love I, yeah. comes out of it. You know, you don't really hear the love, I think, so much in a concrete term until that moment when Holly Hunter is devastated and she says she just wants him. She just wants the baby to be happy at this point. You know, that's the most selfless thing anybody says in this film up until that point where it's actually about the baby's welfare and not their welfare. Well, but I would argue that in the beginning of the film, there's that like that classic line. Like there's, you know, there's so much love in the world and we need to bring this baby in. Like they, their yeah. instinct. And I think this is what we're, we're, we're saying the same thing. But the instinct is to do it out of love and then to actually achieve it, it becomes a little bit more complicated. I mean, that's true. And I, and I think also what makes this film work, you know, a movie that is about stealing a baby, is that everybody involved in this pursuit of the baby loves the baby so much. Even John Goodman, even the way John Goodman screams when he thinks they've left the baby on the roof. The fact that everybody pursuing the baby, except for maybe the lone biker of the apocalypse who empathizes with the baby because he mm-hmm. was sold. Their their love of the baby, no matter how they talk about it, makes this film feel so good hearted. But what you said before about dogs, like, well, if they stole a dog, it's because going back to what you said about the Coen brothers, like they wanted to make a like it's an emotional squib, right? Babies are an emotional squib. And that's it works for movies, but it also works in general. Most people and I know that probably people listen to go, I don't care. But most people are affected when they see a baby, right? Like, oh, how cute or this or that you do. You you literally like bow yourself and oh let me see the baby or you know there is an an element of it and i think that that's a funny thing i just want to before we lose it too quickly um i want to talk about the idea of like how babies are commerce and in this film because you're right they are viewed as like an object of love because they are a baby but no one's loving this baby right i feel like they just love the idea of the baby but um most times when you see a prop in the paper Uh, or you see a headline in a paper in a movie, there's like gibberish nonsense underneath the title because it's just to give you the the highlighted moment. But in this movie, there's actually almost a full article 
in one of the papers, and I, I uh, have it here. So in the news article that uh, High reads, early in the film about the Arizona Quince, it contains the following text. Their father is an unpainted furniture tycoon, Nathan, Arizona, who reportedly is pondering a run for Congress in the 4th District. Pete Peterson, Republican incumbent in the 4th, dismissed the birth of the Quince as a cheap publicity stunt in what? a news conference. He characterized Nathan, Arizona as an unprincipled media hog and a loud heckering nitwit, but conceded that Trey Wilson, the actor portraying him, is a very nice fellow with a distasteful job to do. Um, (laughs) Wait, it got that meta in that article? Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting because what you just said, like the idea that like and when you look at it in that way, that did Nathan, Arizona have these kids because he wanted to become a little bit more uh, palatable? And, you know, we see this in the election that just happened. Like, I'm an astronaut. I fought in the Air Force. I did this. I'm a single mom. You know, all these things are they're great. But we define ourselves by I am the Amer- I am living the American dream mm-hmm. or I am achieving something. I just but I when I saw that, I was like, whoa, that's it, it all kind of connects. Well, how about Octomom for president? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that, I, I'm just in all that their production design got so granular that I that. Ooh, as a as a nerd for all sorts of technical things and below the line craftsmanship, that makes me really happy. Oh, well, I mean, you know, some of the other big highlights in this movie, right? That he works. You know where he works? H.I.? Go on. Yeah. Oh, well, the, the, the uh, okay. Grumble Grumble Factory. What? He works yeah. for Hudsucker Industries. <laughs> they hadn't even made that film yet. I they know, but I guess they guess it was maybe they had it and then they wrote a movie around it. Um, did you also see the connection to Dr. Strangelove in it? No. Okay, both O-P-E and P-O-E are spray-painted on the door to the gas station restroom, which obviously is a reference to Dr. Strangelove, uh, as the uh, recall code is O-P-E, and General Ripper is obsessed with P-O-E, which is peace on <laughs> earth or purity of essence. <gasps> And finally, there's an end. There's an end. And finally, uh, the alarm button that the clerk presses in the convenience store Mm -hmm. reads Odegaard Trend Security, which is the name of the security company in Crime Wave, which the Coen brothers co-wrote. And that's one that they did right before this, right? With that Sam Raimi directed? Yes. uh, 1985. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I have to admit, like, okay. That I'll I'll zoom in on that because my brain is now churning with all sorts of conspiracy theories. No, but um, when I was growing up as a person who liked movies but wasn't totally obsessed with movies, I don't think I ever realized the Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi connection. I always put them in two very separate universes mm. in my mind. That Sam Raimi is the guy who made Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, the kind of gore horror camera whiz person, and the way over here on the other side of the movie universe was the Coen Brothers, who I consider you know intellectuals. And I, I didn't realize how much these two filmmakers who I considered so separate really built their careers in tandem, helping each other, working together, like being, you know, I, I believe the, um, was it Ethan Cohen was like the editor on Evil Dead um, in that they in that when I watch Raising Arizona now, knowing that, knowing how well these guys knew each other when they were young and starting out their careers, you see so much of that Sam Raimi camera work energy in Raising oh, Arizona, the, the cameras zooming up and down ladders and running through things. And it warms my heart so much, my big cynical heart, to think of these young filmmakers making their low-budget movies and building each other's careers up and, like, creating each other and learning from each other. Having Barry Sonnenfeld here in Raising Arizona as their cinematographer, and then he goes on to make, like, Men in Black. You know? Yeah. I, 
I love watching this play out, especially that these guys are like, you know, making mid they're Midwestern guys who didn't necessarily come out here and do the USC thing and like, oh, Ron Howard's my best friend. Like to see that click. I love it. Yeah, let's actually listen to Barry Sonnenfeld talk about the look of the film. For me on Raising Arizona was what should this movie look like? Ethan said it should look like a storybook that you read to a kid. It should have very primary colors and it should just be like you're turning pages of a book. If you ever take flash photos where the flash photo fills in too much, it looks very two-dimensional because they're lit in sort of an artificial way. And I said, well, what if we lit it that way? Like a flash photography is done where it's too bright and there's too much filled in and it has a surreal look to it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't realize that they edited Evil Dead, but they also edited this film under a pseudonym. Um, and as the whole time I'm watching it, I guess as I've now watched more films with you and just as my language of film has evolved, this this has been copied so much. I was like, oh, it even feels like an Edgar Wright movie. And as I'm doing my research, I'm like, oh, Edgar Wright says it's like one of his favorite films. It, like there's so many. Well, to, to be yeah. fair, Edgar Wright says 9,207 films are his favorite films. <laughs> but I will say, but don't, but you see the similarities in at least the Cornetto trilogy and this. I mean, there yeah, are. this good-hearted, populated world of misfits. And then I think when you take that and and look further back at the genetic tree, it's like Edgar Wright then, if he's if Edgar Wright is inspired by the Coens, the Coens to me are clearly inspired by a film that we saw on the AFI Top 100. They're so inspired to me by Preston Sturgis. Yes, absolutely. Which, I mean, yes, like, we, yeah, we talked about it even later on within that whole episode of Sullivan's Travels because we got into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But you see the Preston Sturgis even here, like two decades before they, or a decade and a half before they made Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And this, this idea of, like, an Americana world of screwball people. But also, like, ill, like not ill intent, but not the best people, right? The, like, the Hail the Conquering Hero is about somebody who's coming home lying about being in the war. Yeah. Uh, Miracle at Morgan's Creek is about a woman who essentially has sex out of wedlock with a bunch of dudes. Get and then it. they cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I not that that's not that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, but, no. like, those are, those are, at that time... Hard topics to kind of get into a mainstream movie. I mean, pretty Im- impressive, actually. Yeah, and and I find making films about flawed characters like that, or even about films where like the villain is kind of sweet, or like you apologize to the villain for dying. To me, that is like capital H humanism. You know, well, because, that, that's what I like to see in a character. I'm well, so tired of like. To me, the bad version of raising Arizona is like done through uh, Leonard Smalls's eyes. He's played by Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson's like, oh, my one last job as a bounty hunter is getting this baby back. And that's, oh, what a tedious world. I'm sick of that. No, but I think you're, I think what unites all of these films is the essential humanity, right? We sympathize with H.I. and Ed because they just want to have a baby. They want to give a baby love. They have no, they're not trying to hold it for ransom. They're not trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, and and they, they take a baby from somebody who has so many babies. Like they do a lot to justify it, but you can, you can identify with the want of the American dream. And, and, and we all are, you know, I, I think there's something really interesting there about, you know, this idea of the gray area. Like we're not all evil or good. We fall in this middle ground and sometimes good people will do bad things and, Bad people can do good things. And I think a lot of the time Hollywood gets caught up in 
Why are they likable? Why do we want to root for them? What's mm-hmm. the deal? And not to fucking bang this drum a million times. I feel like I'm broken record, but like Breaking Bad also runs on this idea. Like you, the re, I mean, until like later seasons, but in the beginning, Walter White is a, a very sympathetic character. Like he, and, and you know, it's same. Like think of it. I think I'm thinking about it because of this, the landscape of this, you know, both films. Um, but it is, it's like, I can go, I can go through anything as long as I know that your heart is in the right place. And I think a lot of the times what gets confused is like, it's not enough to have their heart in the right place. You need to show them being good. And it, and it kind of muddies the water a little bit. I don't know. No, you're right. Like there's a trust level here for the audience, right? Like they Mm -hmm. trust that you're going to note that Nicolas Cage is talking in highfalutin language and roll with it. You know, they trust that you're going to go there with him. They, in a way, this movie, to me, visually, it really reminds me of a cartoon. You know, it reminds me of like the Roadrunner cartoons because uh, you're not quite sure whose side you're on, honestly. Like technically, when, when I watch like a Roadrunner coyote cartoon, it's like, yes, the coyote is technically trying to eat the Roadrunner. He's not necessarily the best guy. But are is anybody really rooting for the Roadrunner? You know, he's kind of a dick. Like, you know, he's like, beep, beep, blah, da, da. Like, you feel bad when the coyote runs into a, a brick wall and gets flattened. It, yes. And so, I mean, I think they're very aware of that here in the idea that, like, Nicolas Cage has that Roadrunner tattoo. And, uh, like, as a matter of fact, I want to correct you on this. is a, a, a thing that's often said, but it's not true. It's the Mr. Horsepower tattoo. What? Who's Mr. Horsepower and why is Mr. Horsepower is a cartoon mascot. It's the logo of uh, Clay Smith Cams, an auto shop established in 1931. It's a sneering, cigar-smoking bird with red feathers and a yellow beak. Um, And it was the, yeah, the the caricature of a legendary hot rod guru, Clay Smith. What? Um, Wait, 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 wait. Did Mr. Horsepower sue the Roadrunner because they look so much alike? Look, I I don't know, but I'm going to call him Mr. Roadrunner. You did, and I think you okay. should call him Mr. Roadrunner. But <laughs> but Amy, this also brings me back to my point. Guess who has the same tattoo? Uh, oh, right, Leonard Tex Malls. But they do they have it in different places? Yeah, they do, right? They have the same tattoo. They're the same person. I, I don't remember oh, no, where he has it. this is some Martha nonsense. <laughs> no, but I mean, it is interesting, though, that the one defining thing that we see, they both share. Again, I'm not saying eliminate them and they don't exist. I'm saying eliminate them from the story. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think you would have a very similar story um, because you, whatever. But uh, but again, they share that tattoo. I mean, I like that the way that the <laughs> tattoo reveal happens in this film is that they, they note the tattoo. They both make eye contact. They don't actually ever get to talk about it and it never gets to mean or ex- be explained by anything because then text blows you up. You are me. I am you. What voice is that? You are me. I am you. <laughs> is is that your? It's my new voice? my my new modulator. <laughs> it Mrs. Horsepower looks a little bit more like Lucille Ball. <laughs> but I'm glad that Mr. Horsepower has settled down and gotten married. That's a lot like H.I. himself, and maybe that's where we're going. Maybe if there was ever a Raising Arizona sequel, God, there should never be. Uh, but Holly Hunter will have a Mrs. Horsepower tattoo. I mean, they definitely feel like they're dangling it when they go is that he was going to move to Utah at the end. I mean, not that, you know, I think the story is very well told and over, but I felt like I was like, oh, I wonder if they like just even dangled that they would move to a different state and have a different adventure. Yeah. But they don't I mean, need I it. Like they don't how need it. even just picked Arizona in the first place, you know, that like raising Arizona is because they were from Minnesota and they were mm-hmm. so sick of just the look of Minnesota, but that they were trying to think of a state in America that was scenic, 
big, beautiful, but not Texas because they said like, we've already done Texas and Texas has so much baggage. You know, like Texas means something like we have yeah. an idea of what Texas is. And they thought that Arizona was kind of slipperier. Like they could make their own Arizona in this film. It could be Arizona, but it doesn't have all that baggage. Absolutely. I, I think it also allows you to tell a story about America without being like what you're saying, without being politically defined. And this movie does have some political undertones to it. I mean, he talks about Reagan in the beginning. And then when they're in the gas station, you see like a Mondale Ferraro bumper sticker. And I think this movie is talking about a time where incarceration rates are going up under Mm -hmm. Reagan. Uh, People are being uh, taxed. Like a working man cannot afford to keep his family fed under the Reagan administration. You know, that's what they're kind of commenting on. It's the beginning of the decline of of the stratification of incomes. Yeah. So I think this movie does have like those kind of political undertones. And to put it in a place that doesn't feel overtly political, it just feels like a wide open space is really smart. And you are allowed to kind of, I don't know if they're Republicans or Democrats, even the way, you know, and and not that it it makes that much of a difference, but it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like it's making a larger statement, but I think it's making a statement about commerce. I think it's making a statement about the economy and not about what you believe, but the economy, yeah. Yeah, like when Goodman takes the baby and he says it's just business. You know, to me, that's like, that's predatory capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, I mean, I would uh, like to say that I don't think uh, high votes. I'd like him to vote. <laughs> well, can he vote because he's been in jail so many times? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, if he f- doesn't have bullets in the gun, is he? Allowed, is that not a felony? We gotta get a we gotta get a legal expert on the phone. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. We spent a lot of time talking about Nick Cage. I just want to devote a little bit of time to Holly Hunter because I love her. She's yeah. awesome. And she's so great in this movie. But we alluded to this earlier, incredibly flawed, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's not, she's also not a goody two-shoes. And I think a lot of people go, oh, she's like the prototype of Marge Gunderson from Fargo. I think she's more high. She's like a wolf in sheep's clothing in a way. You know, she like I said, she tells him to steal a child. Like that wasn't his idea. Yeah, I mean, it's she's her a police, idea. She's an in, she's a police officer intake agent at a prison who falls in love with a prisoner. Like that's incredibly right. problematic. Like just even then, that she is making bad love decisions. You know, Escape that she had from a Dan Moria. who left her, and you yeah. sense that she's also on that quest of like, how do I be an adult? I love that scene that she has with Frances McDormand, you know, where you can sense her panic of how little she knows, just the way that High knows about, like, how to be an adult, how to be a parent. Then there's a diphtheria tetanus, what they call the diptet. You got to get them diptet boosters yearly or else he'll develop lockjaw and that vision. Then there's the smallpox vaccine, chicken pox, and measles. And if your kid's anything like ours, you're going to have to get all those shots yourself first before he'll ever take them. <laughs> Who's your pediatrician anyway? We ain't exactly fixed on one yet, have we, High? 
No, I guess we don't have one yet. Jesus, well, you gotta have one. You gotta have one this instant. Yeah, well, what if the baby gets sick, honey? Even if he don't get sick, he's got to have his dip tat. He's got to have his dip tat, honey. You started his bank accounts yet? Have we done that, honey? We gotta do that, honey. What's that for, Dot? That there's for his orthodonture and his university. Now, you soak his thumb and eye, Dot, and you might get by without the orthodonture and won't knock a thing off the university. <laughs> Ray, you take that diaper off your head. You put it back on to your sister. Anyway, you probably got the life insurance all squared away. Have we done that yet, honey? Gotta do that, hi. Eddie here's got our hands full of this little angel. Yes, ma'am. What would Ed and little angel do if a truck came along, splattered your brains all over the interstate? Where would you be then? Yeah, honey, what if you get run over? That increasing terror in her voice, oh, it, it's, it thrills me with joy. And I love just their bond. You know, that Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand, they had been roommates before when they were both, like, coming up as actresses and Francis of course was already like dating Joel and I think she moved out of their apartment to go and move in with Joel and so the idea that they were friends with Holly through Francis and they wanted to write this movie for her you know this wasn't like a Nicolas Cage who's going to play this part this was like a Holly Hunter centered story for them like they want to write a part that's perfect for her yeah and I, and I think going on this idea of you know, we all don't have our shit together. She wants this baby, but she, in that scene that we just played, like, she doesn't know exactly what to do with the baby. Like, and um, I'm going down another rabbit hole And she's kind of here. putting it in his hands, too. She's yes. like, what are you going to do? Get us a pediatrician. Start yes. a bank account. Like, she's actually not doing it. She's like, get me a baby. Figure this out. And yeah, make she, me really happy. She doesn't fall into that typical role of, like, the natural caretaker. And, and I don't think as, as someone who has become a parent, like you fall into that, like um, you, you learn and you get better. But there was something I thought was really interesting. That song that she was singing the baby, which I never uh, had heard before. So then I Googled it like down in the willow garden. Um, this is, I mean, if this is happening in the movie, then I think the Coens are even smarter than I've ever given them credit for, but it has to be true. Um, she's singing this song down in the willow garden which sounds nice, but that song is about a man that's going to be hung because he murdered a woman. He, like, poisoned her wine, stabbed her, and then threw her in a river. Like, not the best song to sing a child. And I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's, like, a, an intentional choice, too. Like, you know, she's trying, but she doesn't quite know what to to do. And I guess you can make the argument, like, well, what about Rockabye Baby? It's about a baby in a treetop and it falls. But there is something... I just think that we're talking about the Coen brothers being incredibly intentional. There is something that's a subtle way of showing that she's singing this song about, you know, a murderer uh, who who killed someone and is about to be hung. Well, yeah. And I want to ask you this, you know, because one of the other movies I was drawing a parallel to that um, this reminded me of from the earlier AFI list is, well, really our pair of screwball comedies with Katherine Hepburn. You know, because we were talking so much in screwball comedy about how it's like the sensible male and the unpredictable female kind of jumping in and rattling around his world. And I feel like in a way, this is kind of structured like that, you know, bringing a baby. You know, they're both chasing after this idea of this baby. What are we going to do? Are we going to, like, become a couple in the process of this? How is this going to affect our relationship? And it doesn't feel like it maps perfectly onto it in that male-female way. Like, I, I mean, is would you say that Nicolas Cage is more of, like, the screwball, unpredictable Catherine Hepburn here? Or is this a movie where, like, I see Holly Hunter as more sane than him, but is that just because like this movie so framed through his eyes that I'm seeing Holly Hunter the way that he does? Like he thinks that she's the sane level-headed one. And so we're getting kind of a skewed perspective on whether or not she is that sane. 
See, I think they they are they passed the buck between or they passed the baton because she is just as kind of like get me this get me that do that do this like she she's not grounded more than him like what you just said like um but yet she presents grounded so we we assume that she's grounded and i think that's what Ooh, really came out like for me this is just like officer cop bias this is just like oh she got the <laughs> uniform she must be sensible law and order but, but you know what i'm saying but i th- but i think there is an an idea of that like if you speak i used to have a friend uh who would say the most insane shit, but say it so sanely mm-hmm. that you go, oh, right. And then you then you like walk away from it and you're like, wait, they didn't say that? Wow. And like, now he's you know, a Fox News commentator? Well, but you know, but truthfully, like I remember my friend was telling like talking about how like Hershey bars are really just wax. It's just melted wax and people don't know that, but it's not real chocolate. And and I was like, oh wow, I never knew and I'm like listening to this thing. I'm like, and then I like tried to tell somebody else, like, yeah, that whole thing with Hershey bars yeah. being wax. I'm like that's not true. Is that true? Yeah. But like sane people, the most dangerous people to me are the people who sound sane and are crazy. And I'm not going to get super political here, yeah. but I will say that Mike Pence has that thing. Like Mike Pence presents yeah. incredibly sane and normal. And then when you kind of go like, oh, there's a couple things behind the wall here that is, you know, I think that, that that's that weird thing yeah. of, I don't know. I'm always suspect of that. I mean. I'll be honest, I had that happen to me to my face once in a way that was so bizarre that I've kind of never forgiven the person, even though I still know them. It's a it's a, a film person here in Los Angeles. They told me once at a party that they went to an Ivy League school on a basketball scholarship. And I was like listening and nodding and nodding. And then when I went home the next day, I was like, they're five five and they're not athletic. Why did I just believe that? Because they told me it so sensibly. That uh, I'm still mad at them. Like this is it's been like seven years, and I'll I'll like I, every time I see that person say something about a movie, I'm like I still remember when you lied to me about going to an Ivy League that I don't even think you went to on a basketball scholarship. That is amazing. By the way, I just googled about Hershey and wax, and I think there's a part of that is true. It's not fully you're not eating poison, but there's a little bit of edible wax in Hershey products. Is it so like, maybe a, it like per- the candy lipsticks, like the lipstick, the lipstick that you chew? Yeah, I think it's just to prevent melting. I remember when I was in uh, Iraq and they were trying to get like uh, candy bars to the troops, like the biggest problem that they had was what would not melt. And there was only a few candies that would not melt. And I guess if it's not melting, there's some issues with it. It's like, why is the Twinkie not devolving, you know, is not uh, devolving. So wait, so this is like the M&M thing. Was this just a big problem in the 80s when they were like really worried about candy melting? And like the big thing for M&Ms is we're not going to melt. And that was like such a selling point. (laughs) I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if that's like, you know, because M&M is in Hershey's. Maybe it was a subtle dig at Hershey's, like a shot over the bow. And now Um, that like they've put more wax in it, they're like, well, we don't even have to advertise it anymore. We just know we don't (laughs) melt. Put a nut in there and it's not going to melt. Anyways, like, I mean, back to Holly Hunter for a second. Yeah. Like, this comes out the same year that she got the best actress nom for broadcast news. So I love that really? this is also like a Holly Hunter oh, wow. explosion moment where the where people were sitting up and taking notice of her. But very different performances. Mm-hmm. By the way, we got to do broadcast news. We got to figure out that. I'm not the biggest fan of broadcast news, but I do oh, think she's great in that. But well, well, well. That, I'll, I'll back away here from that conversation. Um, okay. <laughs> well, you don't have to back away from it. I'm just, I just, was, I was digesting it. I was just, I, de- I was just digesting. Uh, yeah. I love Albert Brooks. I love Holly Hunter. I love that movie. If I haven't watched it in a long yeah. time, John Cusack. I mean, come on, you can't beat it. Well, let's talk about the babies. I mean, All right. if you had to guess how many babies they hired to play the Arizona quintuplets, how many babies would you guess? 
First of all, that's the one thing I was thinking during this movie. I was like, oh, God, you have one baby who figures very prominently in this film. But then you had to have all those babies, like especially in the room. Oh, I don't know. Like what? Like eight? Double it, baby. It took them 15 babies, 15 babies to play the quintuplets. And it's kind of funny. Like they keep saying that on set because they're trying to get babies at right that right age when they're sort of big. You know, they're not like infants, um, but that they couldn't have babies who are able to walk yet. Because then it was just all bets were off. So they had to get babies right on the cusp of being able to walk for the size they wanted. And they oh had to just gosh. keep firing babies. Because as soon as a baby started to walk on set, they'd call it the walk of shame. Oh, boy. And so they'd what? fire a baby. And Joel actually said that was what was so pathetic is that they didn't even know they were being fired because they were babies. But they, they have all these stories of like the onset um, stage parents being freaked out that their baby was about to start walking. and like so trying to the, make them not walk? Oh, yeah. No. One of the parents of one of the babies took the shoes off the baby and swapped them. They put the left foot on the right foot oh. and the right foot on the left foot so that the baby wouldn't walk. Well, that's sad. You know, I will say that uh, TJ Kuhn, who uh, is the baby in the close-ups, he went on to do two to three commercials after uh, this film and then retired from acting at age three and now is a real estate agent in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Good I w- <laughs> for you. And did you know that the only character in the movie who doesn't cry is actually the baby? Wow, I did not know that. (laughs) I wanted to play a clip of Nicolas Cage talking about the babies, and I'm not even going to set it up more than that. So what was that like for you when you had to start picking up the babies and all that? It was bizarre. It was it was because there there were eight babies and there were eight stage mothers to go with them. And and the babies were crying and the stage mothers were giving me militant glares and and telling me what to do and uh, can you hold a baby? And and then there were all these different angles going on. And and babies to me are very uh, strange because they, they, they don't appear human to me. They're sort of They've got their own way of thinking, you know, they're sort of alien, and, and I respect them for it, but I know that someday they'll grow up and be humans. And as only Nick Cage could say it, there you go. <laughs> someday they'll grow up and be human. By the way, I guess the emotional squib does not work on Nick Cage. The baby emotional oh, squib. no. But do you want to know something sad what? at the risk of bumming you oh, out? Oh, no. Are you going to tell me that one uh, of these babies died? Yeah. Mm, well, not on set. No, 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 no. One of the babies was radically disfigured on set, but nobody, um, that's... Oh, Jesus. I'm kidding. Um, No, okay, so you know when they flash forward and you get to see one of the babies growing up and playing football? Mm Mm-hmm. That actor died. Um, He died when he was 23. He got shot in a road rage incident, which I, you know, I wouldn't bring up just to to distress and disappoint and bum you out, but I'm bringing it up because um, when that happened... Um, when Todd Bolgers, the actor played the, the older version of the baby got shot, um, his school friends were really upset. And what they did is they invented kind of a weapon that they thought would help people. And that weapon turned into the taser. So like his death turned into the invention of the taser. Wow. Ah. Yeah. Whew. Um, oh, okay. So moving no, on I mean, look, that. that's well. I mean, I get. I don't. I don't want to say good. That's a good. But it is. Uh, well, there we yeah. go. I mean, look, there's a reason behind everything. Uh, and effect. Um, the, you know, obviously, this movie is incredibly funny. John Goodman, uh, I think, is great mm-hmm. in this film as and well. Kind of handsome too. Oh, God, Goodman, I think, can pull off sexy no problem like all the time like there's there's something about him here that's an interesting like clean-cut version of himself but he's always got a little bit of a sex appeal i think 
Yeah, when he's combing his hair back and his hair looks all dope. Um, I guess I we're you know because I, I always feel like it's kind of like boring to break down comedy. I just will say that the funniest scenes to me in this movie, uh, and there's so many, but the funniest ones are the one in the gas station where they're talking about buying the diapers, and he's like, "How do you hook them on with you know a thread or you know your needles?" And he's like, "No, no, it's very self-explanatory." Like, and the scene in the bank where they're talking to this older person and both times it's like this older person kind of stopping the pace of the film and they get into this minutia and this little bit of an argument and they even do it in the beginning with like with high when he's with the uh, the board getting parole like it the, for a movie that's so fast paced they come sometimes they just jam the brakes so hard and allow these like really subtle small comedy scenes to take place and i love them I love them so much, and I think I love them even more because they are reminiscent of what I think of the Coen Brothers style now. Like, I think back about the the hanging scene in the Western that they did for Netflix. Like, the the benign, casual nature in a heightened moment. Like, these, mm-hmm. these moments in the film, I, I think True Grit has it as well, like, just stops, and they can just exist in the most mundane, hilarious moment. I think even, like, when... Uh, Jeff Bridges is taking a shit and true grit. Like there's just like, a, it's like you don't see these moments. It's like, these are the moments that you fast forward through or like you just kind of like one line and you get through it. And I just love that they can exist and find funny. Like you want us to get on the ground. You want us to freeze. Cause we move then we're like, it's just like these dumb conversations. It feels like an improv scene to me. I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, they, they really think about the element of surprise. You know, they're mm. always doing what the unexpected thing is, because I feel like there's such a basic version of the script that's just really simple and large, and it doesn't have those details in it. And they go on such a micro level, the elements of surprise. Like the one that always pops out to me is when um, the lone biker of the apocalypse goes into their house and he's mm. like, you, the camera's watching him and you see him squint really closely at the wall, like intently. And you're like, what is he looking at? And it just cuts to crayon fart on the wall. Oh. like. And they do that on the micro level, like they're like, oh, what's this tension? Boom. And they do it on the macro because I feel like every time they make a movie that is all suspense or all drama, the way that they made No Country for Old Men, they always follow it up with a comedy. Like they never do two in a row of anything. They're always like, you think we're this. Now we're this. You think we're this comedy. Now we're this. They, 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 their ability to toggle and always keep the audience guessing, I think is their signature. It's the signature thing that defines them. That makes them who they are. Because to bring it back to Tarantino, you know, they occupy very similar spaces in my mind in that I find them both to be classic film lovers. Like you see their classic love of film go all the way deep, very deep. It's not necessarily even referential as much as it is like we love this stuff and we're bringing forth what works in it. But they electrify what they love about the past and make it feel fresh again. They both do that. But Tarantino's films always feel completely of a piece of him you know they 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 go naturally next to each other you know they're like okay yes i see how that comes out of this and this comes out of this he doesn't keep you guessing i think from film to film the way the cohen's do about where they're going to go next Did, yeah, am i explaining I, that well i don't know No, you are i think i i really no i hear what you're saying i i think that um there way well, i think if i'm if i'm understanding correctly their love of film makes their filmography incredibly diverse because they're like, yeah. oh, I want to do a Western. Oh, I want to do a comedy. Oh, I want to do a remake. Oh, I want to do, uh, you know, it's, 
every one of their films, and I, you know, and while they feel thematically under the same roof, are visually exploring another love. Whether you know that's Kung, that's Kill Bill with you know uh, Quentin Tarantino just doing like I'm going to do this. Yeah. Type. You know, it's like yeah. I mean, I look forward to a Coen Brothers film because they do take chances and they don't repeat themselves. Like the yeah. to me, what they should have done or what most people do or how people want you to be in this business. I just said three things uh, is like they made blood simple and then they would go off and then make like the jagged edge. You know, they would make a big budget uh, thriller, right? Or, you know, some version of that, you know, jagged edge, maybe not the best example, but, uh, but that idea, like, no, they were like, no, we're going to do a comedy and we're going to actually take all of the cachet as being from being like these people who make like taut thrillers to making a fucking cartoon. And you don't see that kind of range in many directors like no not at all yeah. if i can i make the worst analogy in the world that just popped mm-hmm. into my head and it's probably sure. not even going to work but you can tell that i'm hungry yeah okay so if i was to take forth two desserts and i said that these two desserts represent the entirety of the filmographies of the coen brothers and of quentin tarantino and i was just going to cut them down in the middle and be like ta-da i present their who they are as filmmakers for Tarantino, I think I would pick like a pint of Rocky Road, you know, because in Rocky Road, there's so many different notes and flavors, but it's all kind of of a piece, you know, it's one big dessert. Yeah. Where I think if I cut the Coens in half, it would be more like a baked Alaska. Like there's there's clearly kind of separated layers showing everything that they can do. The eclecticism Ooh, within their own career. Is that making sense? Or do I, am I just. Really no, I, w- I was going to I was going to say I would say Rocky Road. I would just go with the pint analogy and say their Rocky Road or Quentin Tarantino's Rocky Road, but uh, the Coen brothers are like that vanilla chocolate strawberry ice cream. You know, it's sort of like three. The Neapolitan. Yes. It's like they work well together and they all feel like they, they complement each other. But if you take one bite, it might be more vanilla. You take one bite, it might be more Mm -hmm. chocolate, but yet they all feel like they work. Can I take this moment to actually say that the best ice cream on the planet is one that you introduced me to. And it's really, it's really, uh, softified my quarantine body yeah it's that ben and jerry's netflix and chilled one oh the one that's my like, god it's oh, so peanut good. butter and pretzel oh. it's the best it's my it literally got me through the beginning part of uh lockdown mm-hmm. uh they go brought me a, a sweet sweet joy now amy this movie is so beloved and uh you know great performances amazing writing really the entree uh, or really the the entrance of these two filmmakers that have really been a big part of American cinema in the last you know 20 so years I can't imagine that that people don't like this but I in my gut I feel like this probably wasn't as well received as I think it was you are correct it was not as well received as you might think in part I believe because people didn't have any sense of what a Coen Brothers movie was and it just came out and it was so unusual that mm. they just couldn't grasp onto it. I mean, Roger Ebert, for example, he hated the dialogue. He thought it was not realistic and he could not clue into the Coen brothers' unique wavelength. Um, the New York Times, they said that the direction is without decisive style, which to me is like one of the weirdest things you can say about it. Like, how do you, how can you say that this film doesn't have a decisive directing style? But the yeah. New York Times said it. Um, they also likened it unfavorably to Truffaut because they said that when the French show that they respect the films of the past, that they said it was like pride. 
And they said that the Coen brothers were showing a love of the film of the past, but it felt to, to the New York Times like a film school affectation. But that is not the negative review that I picked, actually, because I found one that's even much worse. I want okay. to see. I'm, I'm, you've, you've engaged me. I am so excited. <laughs> so I picked a review from the Los Angeles Times. Um, and here's what they had to say about Raising Arizona. They said, the astonishing thing about Raising Arizona is how it can move so fast, be so loud, and remain so relentlessly boring at the same time. It comes swathed in a call of superiority towards its characters. There's always the sense of the filmmaker's superior distance from these maddened hayseeds. Uh, the critic was really offended by all the jokes where baby Nathan gets forgotten. Um, like wow. there was really offended also moralistically that his parents don't check on him earlier when they hear noises coming Jeez. from within. They're very upset by that. Um, and they also didn't like the cinematography. They said, well, the cinematography is good. They thought it was just too much. They said sometimes as the camera flings itself up on an arc through a second story window, then through a bedroom and down and out through the house again, we begin to feel like a yo-yo. But all this wizardry is really in the service of cretinous humor and a deeply condescending viewpoint. The Coens do not cherish the McDonough's as fellow human beings. They manipulate them like cartoon figures, and it's hard to cherish a cartoon. Um, beyond that, it accuses Nicolas Cage of not understanding that the Coen brothers think his character is stupid. They think that Nicolas Cage is acting in a totally different movie where he likes the character, but that the Coens clearly don't like him. And it also says that Holly Hunter is miscast. It said that the part needed to be like this big, larger-than-life character, but it called Holly Hunter small and brown Rhenish. Well, it kind of blows my mind, uh, especially Roger Ebert, who I always feels like gets it. But it goes back to my original thought about things that you can't take to heart people's opinions, right? You you like reading people's opinions because you agree with them on some level. But like these things that this person just talked about are some of the things that we think are the best parts of the film. So, you know, uh, I love it as a as a kind of a debate, but I'm always surprised when the best parts of the movie are the things that people really hate about it. Yeah, one of the insults that somebody wrote about the movie to me actually sounds like a compliment, but they meant it as an insult at the time. Um, the Chicago Tribune called it, quote, an episode of Hee Haw directed by an amphetamine-crazed Orson Welles. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, I'll take it. But back then they're like, Oh no! It's an episode of Hee Haw directed by an amphetamine crazed Orson Welles. Now I'm like, that's a Coen Brothers. I kind of like. I kind of no like that. I yeah. do like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm down with that, and I wonder. And you know, as we start talking about it, because we are going to blast our list off into outer space, and we're starting up our idea of a fucked up family. I think you know we're going to fall into a lot of traps with fucked up families because, uh, you know, fucked up families can be anything. This is not a. This is a fucked up family, but their heart is in the right place. And we're going to see some fucked up families where their hearts aren't in the right place. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think maybe it's not even fucked up. It's just family. Um, so where does this fall? I mean, for the aliens, what do we want to show this to them as an example of the best Cohen brothers, as the best family film, as I mean, there's so many ways to kind of break this down. I mean, I guess, number one, it would be. Is this the best Coen Brothers if we're only going to put one on the list? Because we've been pretty specific. Yeah. But Coen Brothers also fall in that Stanley Kubrick camp where I believe that you could get two of them on a list because they are so different. I'm open to that to that asterisk, the Kubrick asterisk, which I think maybe we can also be extended to Spielberg only because they are so eclectic, mm -hmm. it, which means that like, due to my logic, due to my ice criminology, I would only be able to have one Tarantino, which I accept as the punishment for what I'm saying. Um, 
It's tough. Okay. Because if I had my favorite Coens, right, it'd be Raising Arizona. And gosh, what else would I even say? Honestly, because I love so much of them. But which ones do I think are better? Right? Like, that's a hard question. I mean, look, I would, I mean, I love Hudsucker Proxy. Is that their best movie? I yeah. don't know, but it, it, it scratches an itch that that's I love. That's exactly what I thought too. I was like, I love Hudsucker Proxy too, but I can't imagine making the argument that that would be the best one. It, I'm, but I love yeah. that one. But I can't imagine that people are saying that, like, well, you have to put Fargo on that list or The Big yeah. Lebowski, the ones that are like kind of the the seminal, highly respected ones. But then I think there's like a, a benefit of true grit. I mean, there's so much and their yeah. movies do grow on you. I mean, they're, they're, this is a tough I don't know if we could I, ever figure out this debate tonight. Like, what is the best one? No, let's one? do it. Let's do it. Let's call right. it. The, I mean, I would say that I'd rather have Raising Arizona on the list than Big Lebowski. I think mm-hmm. Big Lebowski is the more popular film. I think Raising Arizona, to me, nails the emotional level on a, on a, on a deeper sense to me. Because when I mm-hmm. hear that ending, you know, the final dream. Was it wishful thinking? Was I just... Fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do. But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away. Where all parents are strong and wise and capable. And all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. When I hear that scene, I get misty. I don't get misty at any point in um, Big Lebowski. I love that film. But it doesn't emotionally engage me so tenderly as Raising Arizona is capable of doing. And, you know, I'm, I, I, would I like argue, excess and I like yeah. to put as many emotions into a movie as possible. So to me, that does give Raising Arizona an edge over at least that one. Well, I would say that Raising Arizona also has an edge over Fargo, in my opinion, because of the same thing. I love Fargo. The performances are great. The world is great. Uh, the mystery is, or, you know, that, that story that, did, you know, the detectives are, I mean, boy, it's hard. It's hard because I'm looking at this list and I'm going, well, I'm not, we're not even talking about Miller's Crossing, which I still think is like an underrated yeah. Coen Brothers Or A gem. Serious Man, which is a movie I really love, but I, oh, I think I like so Raising unique. Arizona. It's so unique. There's nothing else like that. And yet I still think I'd give the edge to Raising Arizona. I mean, I'm looking at this list and if I'm on a if I'm on an island and I can only watch one, I'm probably taking that one. I mean, I'm, I definitely would want to talk about No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I really have grown to like True Grit more and more. I mean, Hey, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to uh, to kind of pull it all together. I mean, they are so different. They're all different feelings, you know, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so if I'm putting this up to the aliens, I, I think I say, like, I think they're going to get it because mm. there's something so universal about the way that this movie is shot and the way it's engaging. It does feel like a cartoon. Cartoons are often made for kids, you know, and I think there is the ability to make this movie pull on those heartstrings and do all those things because the characters are so big. I think it's an, it, it works on that way. I think that's, a, that's why this movie has the staying power that it does. I think that for most people, this, uh, I mean, I wonder, I wonder yeah, what's been the most. I'm going to call it on myself. I'm going to call it, I'm going to want, I'm going to say one Cohen and I'm going to say Raising Arizona. Because now that I'm reflecting on it, I admire Fargo a ton. 
Mm-hmm. I think we can fill a Fargo slot with a great noir still. I think we have good ones on this list. Mm-hmm. I think I think we won't lose a specific thing if we don't have Fargo on the list. I think then to me it would come back down to like Lebowski versus Raising Arizona. Um and I think between those two I would give Raising Arizona the edge. So I think I could live with one Cohen and it being this one. I agree. I'm taking your side. I agree. I would say if we had two Cohens, I would take No Country for Old Men and Raising Arizona just for the diversity of them. So you take uh, No Country over Fargo? Yes. Because okay. I think if we're really trying to d- draw like a very strong line, I think that Fargo is more in the side of Raising Arizona. Whereas if you took those two films and you told the person nothing about who wrote and directed them, I don't know if you would say they're the same director. No, I agree. And I do want to do Fargo eventually just because it was kicked off the 90s list. Yeah. I feel like we we owe it to Fargo to give it that shot. I, that makes me want to do like No Country then if we're like bringing it down to those two. But yeah. I mean, it's a debate that I think we'll continue to have because hopefully this is not the last. I, even though we are saying we're going to pick one for the list, I think mm-hmm. we should continue to look watch yeah. uh, Coen Brothers films. We don't need to take films. our first vote. We got to count. You know, we yeah. Really, yeah. So I think that this movie works for the aliens. Um, I think it works for our list. I really, really like it. Um, and, uh, it stands the test of time. We know that. Um, all right. So then next week, talking about standing the test of time, I'm really excited about what we're going to do next week. Cause we are good doing, I think one of the great all time, like prestigious art house, beautiful classics that I'm hoping is going to blow a lot of people's minds. We are doing Tokyo story. Don't which, even know what this is. Then you are in for such a treat. This is going to be your first Ozu you're first by the great Japanese filmmaker Ozu. This is from um, 1953. It is really beautiful. The, you see Tokyo Story show up on pretty much almost every major director's favorite films of all time list. <laughs> But you know what? That gave me a little sense of the tone, Amy. And and I'll say that this movie is available right now on HBO Max. So if you have uh, HBO Max, you can get it. It's in part of the, the subscription of that. It's also on YouTube and Google Play. Um, so you can get a chance to jump into this two hour and 16 minute film, uh, which, uh, I'm excited to see and daunted by already. All right. So, uh, we will see you next week for, uh, another part of this mini series of effed up families and submit your, uh, example. We have some time this time, uh, for the best effed up family movie. And if you want to watch, uh, and listen to, uh, listener feedback to our horror movie series, just visit me on Twitch at Twitch. Uh, dot tv slash paul sheer it's just like youtube you can jump on you can watch amy and i uh break down what you all thought uh was the best horror film Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh... 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.